Welcome to Maryland Chatters. I'm your host, Danielle Gaines. The world is a much different place than it was last week when we first started preparing for this episode. On Wednesday, a violent mob breached the U.S. Capitol in a deadly attempt to stop the certification of Joe Biden's election as America's 46th president. The attack occurred one day after two Democrats won elections in Georgia, giving their party a majority of the U.S. Senate. We talked this week with one of Maryland's senators, Chris Van Hollen, about the violence at the Capitol, the new Congress, the new administration, and the impact of COVID relief on Maryland. Later this week, the Maryland General Assembly will convene for an extraordinary session, with desks surrounded by plexiglass, a House chamber annex, empty hallways, and virtual bill hearings. I talk with Maryland Matters editor Josh Kurtz about what can be expected this session, from the logistics to the legislation. First, my conversation with Chris Van Hollen, Maryland's junior senator, which was recorded on Monday morning. Well, hello, Senator Van Hollen. How are you today? Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, Even in these very trying and traumatic times, uh, I think brighter days are ahead. Yeah, we were originally going to meet and talk about your hopes for this coming Congress. But of course, everything changed uh, on Wednesday. And so I was just wondering, you know, how are you doing after after what happened in the Capitol? How are your colleagues doing? Well, I think everybody is still struggling uh, to come to terms with exactly what happened in our country on January 6th. Uh, We witnessed this violent mob attack on our Capitol. It was an attack on our democracy, and it was instigated uh, and incited by the President of the United States, uh, who has refused to accept the results of a democratic election, uh, shown contempt for our Constitution. And in many ways, this is sadly the predictable results of uh, what the President has done over four years, and especially what he did after the election in terms of spreading a poisonous lie uh, that you know somehow he was cheated out of an election. Um, this was telegraphed even before the votes were cast when the president said that if it, he didn't win, it was going to be rigged. Um, and then he set out to establish this false narrative. And it's very dangerous, um, a- as have his accomplices been. He's been aided and abetted by too many Republican senators and House members. And now our challenge is to find ways to hold everybody accountable, uh, remove you know, the president from office as, as soon as possible, even as we head into the final days, um, and, and then work to move our country forward with the new Biden-Harris administration. Mm-hmm. How do you think this will change the work of the next Congress? Do you think it adds um, uh, new obstacles to doing your work, or do you think it adds to the agenda of what you need to do? Well, I think the new Biden administration, I know President-elect Biden is determined to tackle the big challenges uh, facing our country, uh, beginning with um, stopping the spread of COVID-19, getting the vaccines uh, out and into people's arms as fast as possible, uh, addressing the economic damage and fallout. And then, as he said, uh, not just repair the damage, but build back better. We have so many challenges in terms of our economy, making sure that people can earn a decent and livable wage, dealing with issues of racial inequality and social justice. So 
Uh, all of that we need to press forward with. Uh, we need to also um, have a reckoning as to what happened because we cannot, you know, just move on uh, and forget about uh, the attack, you know, really incited by President Trump uh, on the heart of our democracy. Just given our proximity to DC, there were probably quite a few Marylanders in the crowd um, on Wednesday. What do you think about that, um, representing the state as a whole and, and knowing that some of the people there were your constituents? Well, I, I think this is a moment where our country really has to wake up uh, to what's happening. And, you know, a big part of the problem has been, uh, you know, people taking big doses of the poison that the president has spread and the big lie uh, that he spread. And so we all need to do a better conversation and making have a do a better job of getting the truth out. Uh, but the reality is that the way so many people receive their information these days is in these narrow silos. And you know Trump has exploited that uh, to feed uh, these lies uh, to people. So we really need to step back and take a look um, at some of the big questions. Uh, I'm pleased that the social media companies um, have now, you know, essentially turned off uh, Trump's uh, feeds uh, because he has been using them uh, to spread lies and dangerous lies that resulted uh, in the attack of the Capitol. Mm -hmm. um Obviously, COVID-19 will figure very heavily into this next session of Congress as well. Um, you've been advocating for increased COVID relief. Uh, what do you think are the most important things um, that need to be done in that area? Well, I was pleased we were able to pass the, the $900 billion stimulus bill. It was uh, too late in coming. Uh, it has some big gaps. Uh, but it does provide an essential lifeline uh, in the coming months uh, as a bridge uh, to the Biden administration. And I know, you know, President Biden will be uh, proposing a number of measures to fill those gaps and, and build back. Uh, one of the biggest gaps was the lack of direct help uh, for state and local governments, uh, which are, you know, struggling to provide, you know, constituents with services and provide, you know, frontline uh, emergency uh, services uh, to our communities and our states. Uh, we also need to beef up uh, the rental assistance fund. I was pleased and worked hard to include the $25 billion fund for rental assistance, uh, but we can expect to see a tsunami of rental payments uh, coming due um, in the coming months. And um, we need to continue to extend the moratorium on evictions, but at some point, uh, that will come to an end, and we need to make sure we don't see a flood of people um, at risk of eviction. And so that, that's an important piece. The behavioral health component, uh, we had $4 billion, but uh, we, we need a lot more to support um, individuals. We needed it before the pandemic. We needed even more uh, during uh, this pandemic. Uh, so those are some of the major items. I also do support an increase in the individual payments um, uh, for uh, all Americans. And, you know, we've already heard from the, the president-elect, uh, Biden, that 
that is also on his agenda. So those are some of the immediate relief measures. I, I should say that in terms of Build Back Better, um, we can talk about it. I, you know, we need a very robust agenda in terms of uh, clean energy, climate change, uh, passing the George Floyd the Justice and Policing Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, a number of measures I've introduced um, with uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass uh, on, on racial equity and police accountability. So um, a very big agenda there and happy to go into that further. Yeah, I was going to ask you about a few things. Um, I guess, why don't you go ahead and start with uh, the legislation you're co-sponsoring with Karen Bass? Well, this is a complement uh, to the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Uh, the George Floyd Justice Policing Act is designed to provide more transparency and accountability um, around uh, policing. Um, the legislation I introduced with Congresswoman Karen Bass is designed to encourage state and local governments, uh, especially local governments, to create alternatives to police responses uh, to many of the 911 calls they receive. Because in so many instances, these are calls that really are dealing with a mental health situation or a substance use disorder situation, homelessness, and dispatching you know, police um, with an armed response uh, has led too often to unnecessary escalation and tragic killings. And so I want to encourage um, jurisdictions to do what some other um, local governments have done, which is create alternatives uh, to a police response uh, and you know, dispatch um, you know, the mental health folks uh, to situations where we really want to you know, de-escalate things and also provide uh, help uh, to people uh, who are impacted by, by, by mental health. So uh, we're going to push very hard. Uh, I've talked to a number of members of the Biden team about this. It's consistent with uh, their direction, uh, the direction they want to take. So that, that's, I think, an important measure. And as I say, it, 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 it combines with the accountability um, and transparency piece. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, another major issue right now and you've been working on this a little bit I think even before more schools went to online learning but you were talking about the homework gap and some education reforms that are needed what if anything or in what ways do you see legislation on those issues moving forward I think we have a very good chance of moving forward on closing what we used to call the, the homework gap and now is a full-blown learning gap. Um, you're right, I, I was working on this before the pandemic uh, because too many students um, were left behind and unable to do their homework uh, because you know, so many of the resources you need for your assignments these days are online. You know, when I was at school, it was, you know, you got your books and your pencil and your paper, and but now. Uh, if you don't have access to online, you're at a huge disadvantage. And of course, the pandemic has made that, you know, thousands of times worse when classes are, are going online. So uh, we're going to push very hard. I introduced legislation uh, to address this issue. Um, there is bipartisan support um, for dealing with uh, access to high-speed internet broadband. Uh, in my view, access to broadband in the 21st century is like access to electricity in the 20th century. It's, a, it's an essential. 
And it's important to students, it's important to families, it's important to workers and small businesses. Do you feel like the government response to ensuring broadband access has been as robust as their, you know, eventually the government stepped in and helped with electricity access, right? Um, has the government been too slow to do that for internet? Oh yes, way too slow. And uh, we need to accelerate that effort. That's what I was working to do before the pandemic. And now the, the pandemic has highlighted how essential it is for people to be connected. So uh, we're gonna be pushing both the FCC, the Federal Communications uh, Commission, but also other um, agencies of government to push harder and provide more resources. Uh, the latest relief bill provides some uh, additional funds for access to broadband, uh, including some for, for lower income families. Uh, but uh, Senator Markey and I proposed a big boost in what's called the E-rate program uh, to help schools, libraries, students. And that was blocked uh, in this latest round by uh, Republican senators. So uh, now that we have two new um, senators from the state of Georgia, uh, and Democrats have a majority, a very slim one, but a majority in the Senate, we're going to really push forward on that. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's just really been brought to light by the pandemic or brought more to the forefront for more people is the issue of healthcare disparity. And so I know you have something called the Protect American Investment in Drugs Act. And I was wondering if you could um, explain what that does for us. Right, thanks for asking about this. Uh, as you said, uh, you know, COVID-19 has really shown a harsh light on so many um, you know, inequities and um, especially with respect to communities of color um, and healthcare disparities are, are a very big one. We need to dramatically reduce the cost of prescription drugs. I mean, this does impact um, every American, but uh, especially those who um, you know, can't afford uh, drugs and we need to do a much better job of controlling the price. So this bill is very straightforward. What it's, it's called the We Paid Act. And the idea is that we taxpayers uh, make an enormous investment every year uh, in research on new cures uh, and treatments for diseases through the NIH, over $40 billion every year. It's a really important investment. But what happens is many you know, pharmaceutical companies get the benefit of that publicly funded research, and then they develop a drug and turn around and gouge the same taxpayers and consumers who have been funding the research. That makes no sense. So this bill makes clear that you know, where a company has developed a drug with the help of this important public research, and that's true for most of the big drugs these days, uh, they, they cannot charge um, an excessive price. And there's a mechanism established to do that. And I really hope uh, we'll move forward on this on a bipartisan basis. I had a couple more questions about a few pieces of legislation um, that you're working on. I wanted to see if you could talk to me about your climate bank legislation and how that would affect you know, efforts at slowing or stalling climate change and whether or not you think that will be moving forward or on what timeline. Well, I, this is a, an initiative that I think is an essential part of our strategy uh, to confront climate change. Uh, and I have uh, talked uh, to a number of the members of the incoming uh, Biden administration about it. I think that they're supportive. Um, 
a, a piece of this was included in a larger infrastructure bill that passed the House of Representatives. So it's already, you know, gotten halfway uh, through the process. The idea is that we need to deploy clean energy much more quickly. We need to accelerate uh, the deployment of renewable energy sources uh, as well as energy efficiency. And it creates a, a financing mechanism. Um, we called it a green bank at one point. Uh, a climate bank is another version. Uh, now it's called the clean energy accelerator. Um, but regardless of the name, the idea is to create a fund, a, a publicly endowed fund uh, that that could be used to lend money um, at very low interest rates uh, to accelerate the deployment of, of clean energy, um, which is essential if we're going to, um, you know, slow down and, you know, ultimately stop uh, the worst of climate change. It's also essential uh, for our economy, and it would be a great uh, incentive for more clean energy jobs and other countries, including China, are getting way out ahead of us on key technologies like battery storage and other things. It's, it's part of what they call the China 2025 plan. And so it's both necessary for us to do this to address climate change, but it's also essential as part of our economic uh, and job strategy. Mm -hmm. Even before the pandemic, there was, um always a lot of talk about, you know, infrastructure week, this is infrastructure week, or, you know, there being common ground on really one area and that being infrastructure and, um, you know, maybe accelerating long overdue projects throughout the country and putting people to work on them. Um, now we've got even more people out of work. Um, things aren't being tended to as they used to. Do you see, um, do you see that coming to life and coming to fruition um, as part of the Build Back Better strategy or no? Yes, I do. As you say, this is um, you know one area that always gains sort of bipartisan support, at least rhetorically. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it is a big part of, uh, you know, incoming President Biden's agenda, um, a big infrastructure package, not only traditional infrastructure like roads and bridges, but you know, even, even more importantly, transit, broadband, we talked about access to high-speed internet, clean energy infrastructure build out, you know, water sewer, a very expansive uh, definition of, of infrastructure to also include affordable housing stock. So um, yes, uh, but the big caveat here is, uh, Republican senators always talk about the fact they support infrastructure modernization, but have always, uh, you know, balked, resisted um, any financing measures, how to pay for it. Uh, you know, my view is that this really is an investment uh, in our future. Um, and therefore, given the very low interest rates uh, we're facing now, um, it is something that we can, you know, fund um, on the investment side, you know, just as um, many businesses borrow uh, to make, you know, long-term investments that will uh, deliver returns. And this would deliver a huge return uh, for our country. So I, I hope we can uh, come together uh, and do a really big, bold infrastructure modernization plan. Um, do you think that something along the lines of, of the WPA or programs like that in the past is possible? 
Well, I, I do think that uh, it will not only, you know, help, you know, build out our infrastructure and, and make us a more productive country, it will also, and, and very importantly, put um, millions of Americans uh, to work in good paying jobs. And uh, that is something I've pushed very, for very hard as, as part of this, uh, this effort. Uh, and I, I think that this needs to be combined, and I, I think the Biden administration is going to include this. It's another measure I've introduced, um, along with Senator Wyden, uh, to address long-term unemployment. Uh, we're now at about, obviously, we've got a lot of unemployment uh, during the pandemic, but long-term unemployment uh, was a persistent chronic issue even before the pandemic. Um, these are individuals who want to work. They're looking for jobs, um, but can't find them. And uh, we're proposing a measure that would subsidize employment for people who are chronically um, unemployed, uh, both through uh, private sector, the nonprofit sector, and uh, the public sector. And, and it would be combined with job training, very intensive job training programs. And the idea is, is simple. Everybody who's you know, looking for work and wants a job should be able to get a job and provide for themselves and, and their loved ones. So uh, that, that should be part of a broad you know, bill to, re, to build back better. Mm -hmm. We're getting close on time. I wanted to ask you about one more piece of legislation and that was a millionaire's surtax proposal. You know, this is a recurring idea. What do you think makes it worthwhile right now? Well, this is a very straightforward idea and it's to help you know, fund other priorities. As I said, when it comes to things like infrastructure investment, I think we can, um, you know, borrow for those uh, capital investments. Um, but um, obviously, we need to, you know, make sure that uh, on, on some of these things that we're you know, being, you know, careful to, to exercise some fiscal discipline. Um, and this is a clear way that we can raise money in a fair way and, and ask, you know, those who have done very well in our country uh, to do more. Uh, it's a 10% uh, income tax surcharge. So, uh, and it applies not just to, you know, earned income, but to income, um, you know, on people's stocks, uh, you know, people who make a lot of money off of money. Um, and there makes no sense to, you know, not include those profits uh, as part of um, any um, income tax surcharge. So it's a 10% uh, on top of uh, what is currently paid. It would generate uh, substantial uh, revenue uh, to help pay for many of the investments we need to make because uh, I've also introduced legislation and I know the Biden team believes we need a dramatic increase in our federal investment in K through 12 education and early education. And um, it's a bill I introduce uh, every year in the Congress and it is now getting a lot more traction uh, and it would boost Title I funds for, you know, uh, schools in uh, poorer neighborhoods. Um, and this is an essential piece too. So uh, the millionaires um, surtax uh, is a revenue source, a fair revenue source. Uh, to help support many of these uh, priorities. Well, I know that your party has been anxious to really hit the ground running during this new administration, the new Congress. So much has also changed just in the past few days. 
how would you like to see your caucus prioritize at the start of the Biden administration? Well, um, the, the good news from our caucus's perspective uh, is that we have two new members that were elected um, in Georgia on January 5th. And so now we have a majority. That means that at least we have the gavel um, and can uh, you know, set the agenda. Uh, Mitch McConnell will no longer be able to obstruct through his use of the gavel. That said, uh, in the Senate, um, unless we have filibuster reform, which I support, uh, he, he and you know some other obstructionists can still block important initiatives. Um, so where I want us to see us get a fast start is the same place that the uh, incoming president wants to get us a fast start. Number one, deal with the immediate emergency of the pandemic, make sure that we uh, accelerate the deployment of the vaccines, uh, but then that we have another round of both emergency economic relief, but as part of that, start the Build Back Better uh, agenda, because it's not enough simply to go back to where this country was before the pandemic or four years ago. We have so much unmet business and challenges, and that's one of, one of them. And that needs to be combined, and I think it will be, with moving forward on the social justice and racial justice agenda, uh, moving legislation for police accountability, moving legislation to knock down barriers to voting rights, uh, addressing important uh, disparities uh, as we go forward. And, and my at the, at the bottom of all this are really deep gaps with respect to income and wealth inequality. And we need to be, you know, having a, a comprehensive strategy on how to address that vital issue in our country. So the, the last four years, we've had an administration that really tried to pull us back um, as a country um, in, in what has been a march, a too slow march, but a march toward a more perfect union. Um, you know, now we, we need with urgency uh, to, to get back on that path as a country. And, um, and I, I'm excited to be, be part of that as we move forward. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Well, thank you and stay safe. Hi, Josh, how are you? Uh, doing fine, Danielle. Uh, sort of getting excited about uh, the start of session and sort of worrying about it. Yeah, it's uh, definitely going to be not like anything we've experienced before. No, I think that I think the two words we're going to hear uh, uh, the most uh, this session are, you know, surreal and unprecedented. And, um, you know, let's start using both of them now because uh, that's what the session is going to be like. And, um, you know, I think that's what opening day is going to be like, too. Yeah. So um, what kind of changes do you think we can expect to the day-to-day -day operations? Well, um, there will be there will be many, um, you know, probably most notably is, well, a few, I mean, they're all kind of pretty notable, but, you know, nobody's going to be allowed in the state house, basically, no members of the public, no lobbyists. Uh, just lawmakers and a few key staffers um, and a few reporters are, are going to be allowed in there. Um, the, uh, the, the, the lawmakers are going to be surrounded by plexiglass. They'll have sort of, it'll look like old phone booths. They'll all be sitting in their own phone booths. 
um, and uh, and um, and senators will be uh, and House members are going to be split. Half of them will be in the House chamber, and half of them will be across the street in uh, the House office building in what's been known, being known as the chamber annex. So, I mean, these are going to be kind of crazy differences right off the bat. Um, very few people are going to be allowed in the legislative buildings. Um, you know, sessions are sort of busy. They're, you know, Annapolis and the legislative buildings can re resemble a bazaar with people just sort of milling around and talking and sort of peddling their wares. Um, and, uh, you know, there'll be a ghost town instead. So uh, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to even imagine, but, you know, we'll see it with our own eyes in a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. um, in addition to just limiting access, um, what other safety protocols are there in place? Um, even if it's just the lawmakers and some journalists and some staff that's still, we're talking about hundreds of people. Right, yeah, well, everybody is gonna uh, get stopped on the way in to uh, uh, the state house. Um, They'll have to. They'll have to answer some questions. They'll get their temperature taken, um, and you know it's possible that some people will be turned away. Um, I think legislators are going to have to go through that same routine. They're going to be asked a whole series of questions. I think they're even going to have to fill out forms basically every day to to show that they're uh, they're healthy and and uh, COVID free and um, so it's gonna be, uh, you know, it's just gonna be interesting. When we've gone into the, the few times we've gone into the state house since the pandemic, since the last legislative session, we've had to do that, but it's been, you know, with, with hardly anyone around. Now, as you said, you're talking about a few hundred people who are gonna be around, so it'll be different. Um, of course, it looks like the house will barely be meeting for the first month in floor sessions and the Senate is probably going to do about two a week for the first month. So that's going to keep traffic down initially. Mm. And of course, all of the uh, all of the committee meetings for the entire three month session will be virtual. Mm -hmm. um, what I, I want you to kind of paint a picture. You've been in Annapolis for a long time. So what is a first day typically like? And, and do you have any idea what this Wednesday is going to look like? Yeah. Well, the first day is usually a lot of fun. It's like, you know, a great big rolling reunion. Um, you know, everybody's happy to see each other. There's lots of pageantry. You know, lawmakers bring their families down. You know, the House and Senate floors are usually packed full of guests and, you know, kids sitting in laps and spouses. Um, none of that's going to happen this year. Um, uh, increasingly, um, you know, the opening day has become like a party day where the legislators do their business, uh, you know, at high noon, then they adjourn. And then as you walk around state circle, it's just sort of like, you know, party, 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 party at various lobbying firms and hotels and watering holes, receptions. And uh, none of that's going to be happening uh, this year either. So, you know, there's just this air of festiveness that's not going to be there now um and that's sad <laughs> yeah you know you always get to see like the new babies and all sorts of things people's new spouses and life experiences and um 
I guess we'll just have to hear about them this time around. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And, and honestly, uh, you know, I mean, there, there's an element of official business that takes place on opening day in both chambers and that will still happen, but, you know, I'm not quite sure what it's going to look like and feel like, um, no one will be in the audience except for a handful of reporters up in the galleries. Um, we usually get to hang out on uh, in, in designated areas on the House and Senate floors. We'll be above the action now. Um, you know, people are discouraged from congregating in the uh, State House lobby before and after the sessions go in. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just going to be sort of quick and dirty, business like, and then people will disperse to where we don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got a flavor of this when, you know, last session was cut off, was cut short because, yeah. you know, access was limited, but we weren't in a, a masking, social distancing world yet. Right. Um, reporters were still on the floor. We were still walking up to lawmakers. Right. Committees were still meeting. Um, so, even with that taste of things, we don't really have a good idea of how things will work this session. That's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, Do you think that all of this will change the information and the reporting that is able to come out of Annapolis? Well, for sure. Um, you know, certainly as journalists, so much of what we do, you know, we cover the official proceedings in in uh, in committee rooms and on you know, the floor of the House and Senate, but so much of what we do is just talking to people. And one of the great parts about session is that everyone you need to talk to is really there most of the time, advocates, lobbyists, lawmakers, staffers, and they're hanging out in hallways or they're accessible in their offices or, you know, you see them out on the street. And I kind of wonder how many will be around at all, but that 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 aspect of reporting, that ritual of reporting will be gone. Um, I actually suspect that there'll be a bunch of people in town on opening day and, you know, it's supposed to be a decent day outside. So you might see lobbyists congregating outside or and advocates and, and stuff like that. But um, but again, that's, you know, that's just one day and I can't see there being uh, any kind of critical mass any other day. Um, one thing that's um, changing for the good, I think, is um, every floor session is going to be uh, uh, broadcast now, telecast on uh, on the legislature's website. Um, the House only started doing that on an experimental basis last year. The Senate was supposed to start on an experimental basis this year, but now they've pledged that every floor session is going to be uh, available for viewing. Um, in committees, hearings had traditionally been available for viewing, but not voting sessions. That's going to change. Um, and that's potentially, um, you know, an area of sunshine that there hasn't been before. So that's a good thing. And, you know, frankly, if you want to come and testify before a legislative committee, that's a commitment. You know, you have to come down to Annapolis, take several hours to come from wherever you're coming from. Um, now you'll be able to testify. Um, from the comfort of your own home. If you're given an opportunity to testify, some committees will be limiting testimony. So that's a change too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely, you know, it will um, 
we won't have the advantage of seeing who's coming and going from key offices like yes and so that's going to be really disappointing but it's um, disappointing and will make our jobs harder i think too yeah yeah. But I think a lot more of the official actions, um, like you said, the voting sessions and stuff are going to be more accessible. And one could only hope that means they'll remain that accessible uh, in future years as well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what are um, what do you think are some of the big issues that are going to come up this year? I guess um, starting with things that are going to be driven by the pandemic, by COVID-19. Yeah. Right. Well, clearly, I mean, I think there's widespread agreement among the lawmakers that dealing with the fallout from the economic devastation of the pandemic is really job number one, you know, helping struggling families, helping renters who can't uh, make rent, helping, you know, struggling small businesses. Um, so there's that agreement. The question is how to get there. And um you know, Governor Hogan on Monday, um, he he came forward with a billion dollar proposal for relief. It was a combination of um, uh, some tax breaks, um, some additional funding for uh, uh, business relief. Um, it came from a variety of sources. Um, and interestingly, he basically threw the gauntlet down in front of the legislature and said, this is an emergency bill. You should pass my uh, pass my proposal right away. Um, I don't think the legislature is inclined to do that. They have their own ideas on both sort of the level of funding, the type of relief that's necessary. Um, there's a coalition of state and local officials led by uh, Comptroller Peter Francho who want to see bigger stimulus checks written. And, you know, at this point, we still don't know exactly what the level of federal aid is going to be. Um, the Congress passed a, a, a relief proposal at the end of 2020. There's a new president coming in in a, in a, in a couple of weeks. He's going to push for yet more relief and more spending. Um, how and how quickly that trickles down to uh, states and local governments is going to be an issue. So, um, you know, I mean, I think this is going to be the number one uh, issue of the session. Um, and it's good that people are agreeing conceptually, but I could see there being plenty of arguments about the details and the speed and the, um, you know, the level of payments. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we'll probably see a lot of other bills on education. Um, yeah remote learning, healthcare. Yeah. Um, do you have any ideas on on what we might be seeing in that area? Well, I mean a couple of a couple of the education things we'll be seeing are are reruns from last year. Um, and these will these could be among the bigger fights of session too. Um, the the legislature seems poised to override the governor's veto of the uh, uh, blueprint for Maryland's future, which was a big education reform and spending package. Um, I think they have the votes to override the veto. Um, he vetoed a school construction bill called Built to Learn. Um, I think they have the votes to override uh, that veto. Um, the governor also uh, vetoed a big funding bill for uh, uh, HBCUs in the state, and that was... Um, designed to settle a years-long lawsuit 
about HBU funding and, and other governance and other issues like that. Um, instead of overriding the veto for mostly technical reasons, they're going to actually pass the bill again or some measure of the bill. Right. And that's and, HB1 and SB1, which that's right, which is a big clue to its value and importance. To right. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So it's a top, it's a top priority of, of legislative leaders for sure. And and Speaker Adrian Jones in particular. And yeah, I mean, there's sort of all kinds of, um, you know, health, wealth, economic disparities that are, are also going to get discussed. Um, I think legislative leaders are going to feel pressure from the left of the Democratic Party to do something really bold. But there could be fiscal restraints. Certainly, Governor Hogan and the Republicans are not going to want to see a lot of extra spending or, or more taxes. So um, that's going to become a confrontation, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were some revenue bills geared at, you know, certain business taxes, business expenses right. um, that didn't move forward last year that you know, some groups are going to try to move forward this year, but they were opposed by Republicans last year who just said business can't handle this and right. uh, we all know what's happened to the economy since yeah yeah the other thing we saw in the interim was widespread movement regarding police reform yes and and equity issues and um i'm wondering how much you think that is gonna come up this legislative session well i think that's also a big priority of legislative leaders they've made that clear so I, I'm, I'm certain something pretty comprehensive is going to pass. I think, you know, the, the House and Senate were working on, on parallel tracks um, on police reform issues. I think they're pretty close to uh, sort of uh, developing a uniform package. Um, not sure if they'll get buy-in from Governor Hogan, but, um, you know, Certainly, one of the things in the one of the ways the world has changed since the last session is there's just a lot more momentum behind uh, police reform and uh, and criminal justice reform measures, and so I think those will get quite a bit of attention, and and uh, you know I'm sure we'll see something pretty substantive passed. Um, well, finally, are there any things that you're looking forward to covering this session? Well, um, you know, I mean, there's there's quite a bit more to do. And I think I think a bunch of issues are gonna get some airing. Um, you know, there's a, the, uh, there's a big climate bill being developed in the House and Senate sponsored by Senator Pinsky and Delegate Dana Stein. I think that's gonna be a real important discussion. Um, there's gonna be, you know, sort of hand in hand with that, there's gonna be a lot of talk about what can be done to boost mass transit in the state. I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of Governor Hogan's big um, highway widening proposals and the Capitol Beltway and I-270, especially, you know, since the pandemic has changed people's um, uh, commuting habits. Um, you know, uh, there were there were some uh, election reforms that took place in the face of the pandemic that uh, I think people are going to try to make permanent, like making sure that, you know, making a uh, vote by mail, if not the, you know, just strengthening uh, people's ability to vote by mail and kind of codifying that. Um, so I think there are a bunch of things happening and, you know, uh, I'm hoping there'll be some kind of crazy goofy stuff we're not even thinking about now that'll 
that'll come up. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can count on that in most normal sessions. Uh, I don't know if that'll be the case in a pandemic session, but, you know, we can hope. Well, thank you, Josh. I appreciate your time as always. Well, thanks, Danielle. And, you know, it'll be fun talking about this throughout. Yeah, I'll see you in person soon. Yep. <laughs> Bye. Bye. That's it for another episode of Maryland Chatters. Today's show was produced by myself, Danielle Gaines, and the Maryland Matters staff. You can read our nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism at MarylandMatters.org. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. Thanks again for joining us for some chatter that matters.